The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2016, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon is from Friday, June 3rd. Cooper's Dance, Wood and Beer, presented by Peter Buchart, New Belgium Brewing Company, and Dick Campbell. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you to the last salon of the first night of Savor. So thank you all very much for being here. Um, Savor is the beer and food premier pairing event uh, brought to you by the Brewers Association. Um, all of the salons this evening will be recorded and brought to you by craftbeerradio.com and will be available at craftbeer.com next week. And so... Tonight, this last one, we have a very interesting and wonderful salon for a quite unique take um, on something you may have heard about but never quite seen like this. So I'd like to introduce to you our presenters, um, Mr. Peter Buchart from New Belgium Brewing Company and Quality Ambassador for the Brewers Association, Mr. Dick Cantwell. So I'm going to pass it off to these guys, and they're going to tell you all about the Cooper's Dance and what that might mean and what we have in store for you. Okay, that's easier. Um, I just wanted to say a few words about this project. This was really a great project to be a part of. Um, and this is, uh, it's interesting that there's, there's there, up till now there's been very little scholarship about wood and beer. You know, the scholarship about using barrels and fooders for the production of uh, alcoholic beverages has mostly been in connection with wine and spirits. And so, obviously, we drew a great deal on those bodies of information as we were traveling around and putting together the information about how beer would be affected. Uh, but I have to say that, uh, you know, this, this, has been, this, this project was kind of a hot potato. You know, it was, uh, it was offered to Peter as a solo project, and he didn't want to do it. But it was uh, Kim Jordan, who's uh, um, intimately connected with uh, both of us, as uh, um, <laughs> that's, a, that's another salon. Yeah, that that is. We'll get. We're, that's as far as we're going with that. But it was her. It was her idea to team us up for this because um, Peter is truly the expert on this subject, and for this for this case, in this case, I was just the writer. I learned a lot. I have the perspective of an experienced brewer, but uh, it was really fun to do, and I got a chance to travel with Peter and his whole family through France uh, to visit some of the, uh, the, the fooderies and coopers uh, in, in the Cognac region. Uh, we also had a terrific trip in uh, Kentucky, Ohio, and Michigan. We went up to Scotland. Kim was part of that trip. And uh, so we got a chance to sort of cover the earth in terms of figuring out and observing what people are doing in the world of cooperage. So tonight is uh, more or less, uh, I'm holding this book up just to sort of show you what, what I'm talking about, but I'm going to put it down. Uh, tonight is uh, a practical demonstration that Peter's going to do sort of to try to demystify some of the processes of working with barrels. Uh, and, you know, Bradley said that, uh, you know, maybe some of you haven't seen this, but if there are 10 brewers in this room, Eight and a half of them are already doing things with wood, according to the statistics that the BA has, uh, has put together. So wood is a big thing. We all know that. And uh, I'm looking forward to watching Peter do, do the Cooper's Dance as well. <laughs> That's a hard one. I'm not a good dancer, eh, Frizi? Um, so this is going to be an interesting project, I think, to demonstrate that's here. This room is amazingly noisy. If you stand here in the middle, you don't need a microphone, you just can talk like this. So you're gonna hear me hammering in this room, so it's gonna be a really a hard issue. Thanks for Bradley for accepting this proposal. I was like, well, should we do this? Is this something that would be okay to do in DC during Saver to show people how to deal with a barrel? But it's too late now, we're in it, we're gonna start it. And <laughs> Barrels, like uh, Dick already mentioned, and a lot of people are using wooden barrels right now, but they really don't know how to maintain them. And we're, as brewers, mostly using second-hand barrels. 
in the worst case they come from bourbon in the better case they come from wine and I just mean in the sense those are more robust barrels the wine barrels than the bourbon barrels the intent from a bourbon barrel is only to use it once so uh, then we buy them and we use them uh, again. Wine barrel is third year. Unfortunately, the winemakers already use it a few times more. And um, then um, we brewers find it somewhere online or from a winemaker we know or from a broker in barrels. And we go ahead and then we fill it with wild microbiology or just with beer, if it's just an extraction from the flavor, um, and hope it's going to become good. We should take that factor hope out of the equation <laughs> and be able to deal with the barrel like everybody used to know 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Maybe first I need to point out the beers. We're only going to serve two beers during this uh, session. If you want, there's more beers downstairs. So you can always go there. So number one is the La Folie. La Folie is a beer that we've been producing with New Belgium since um, 90, well, we started producing it, experimenting with it in 97, 98, we bought nine barrels and then three more, and then we bought in another truckload, and then we got furthers, and then we're like, maybe we should sell this, and that was by 99, and became La Folie, who means in French, uh, the folly, uh, in English, the folly, it's a business endeavor you're sure to lose money on. Um, so it's for us our staple, uh, it's our dark version of our beer uh, that we let sour in footage, so large upstanding barrels, and then we blend and we just take it from there. Okay, I will start with the more difficult part with a microphone, a beer and tools in my head. The first part should be okay. Peter, can I ask you where wood comes into factory in La Folie? Where does the barrel come into factor for La Folie? So in the case for La Folie, maybe a good question. Um, um, we ferment a beer with a lager yeast in the case of La Folie. We have a dark version and a pale version. La Folie is only the dark per, per, uh, version, Oscar, we call the beer. The pale is Felix, Felix and Oscar, the odd couple. Um, when it's fermented, the regular fermentation, we filter the yeast out and then we're going to put it on barrels and let it sit. Uh, time is not a measurement, um, it's just until it tastes fine. Who makes sense, I think. Eh? I have a bunch of tools here that the TSA had a lot of problems with. <laughs> um, first of all, this one was sticking out of our luggage, as you can imagine. Uh, I taped it here a little bit and then United was so cute to put some tape on it, so they have free promotion here now um, on this. This is, uh, I'm only gonna point out the tools that look a bit weird and that you kind of have to make yourself or um, buy. This is, if you have somebody who makes bikes or something in your town, you just bend a tube. It the easiest if it's hollow, it doesn't really matter. There's one thing that's crucial, it's this, this dimension here. This dimension is the length, oh, the bunghole is on the other side, is from the bunghole to the head. And you'll see why that's so important. Very difficult tool, huh? Go, on the, go shopping on Amazon for a head hammer and maybe you find it. This fancy tool, again, on Amazon for 20 bucks, I think. Um, it's, this is a, um, um, how do you call it? It's a, a flagging tool. Uh, the way we're gonna use it, if you wanna put reed in between staves, I use my butt and I'm gonna push it a little bit out so that I have room to put flagging material in the unit. You'll see that further in the, the session. This one is the hardest to find, and I haven't really found, uh, been able to um, buy this one anywhere. I went to a lot of, or we went to some cooperages, I had been there before, and every time I saw this tool hanging around, I'm like, oh, this is a great tool, uh, do you sell this? And they're like, no, no, we're not selling here, take one. 
And so every fruiterie that we went, I got one. This is a scraping knife. And maybe I will use it later tonight when I go in and see how it looks. But basically how you use it, I'm not going to demonstrate it because I'm going to give this barrel to Nathan from Right Proper. So I want to keep the outside nice. So you kind of scrape up like this, reverse, and it curls pieces of wood off. The reason why we want to do it is we don't know what's going to be in that barrel when we go in. And there can be wine stone, who looks really beautiful from the inside, but it's completely useless for wine, uh, beer makers. It's crystals that form on the outside, and so we want to remove them to open the pores again. Well, maybe talk about that if you remind me on that. Um, but an interesting tool, but I don't know. Are you selling this? You need to. <laughs> Another very sophisticated tool is the head puller. You pull heads with this. Any imagination how you do this? It's really very sophisticated. So on the upper side, it's bent. And it's bent so you can put it in your back pocket, because that's going to be very important when I put it back together. What's way more crucial is the other angle here. It's this that I'm going to use to pull the head up to put it back. You make it from uh, just a hoop. So you have a spare hoop, you cut it, um, and you bend it a little bit, you cut off the um, uh, few angles here, and you bend it a little bit. Not on Amazon also. Um, I think this is it for the tools. The rest of the tools, I'm going to use a hammer. This is an awl, I think. Yeah. Um, a chisel, chalk, probably on Amazon also. Um, so. A barrel now, if you look to a barrel. Can I use the microphone so far? Um, first of all, maybe I should say I got this barrel donated by Rocky Mountain uh, Barrel Company. Um, getting a barrel and getting those tools here in uh, Washington, D.C. is kind of an interesting endeavor. But um, thanks to them, we have a barrel that we can hammer on now. So. If you look at a barrel, what are you going to look at? For me, you need to use your sound, you need to use your, um, your smell, um, you just need to feel. Okay? So is a barrel going to feel solid? If you feel this one, I don't know who's underneath here, but uh, um, this really sounds good barrel. So that's the first test that you want to do. If you're going to buy a barrel, you better check on that. You're going to look around. And this one has been a little bit dinged up. I don't know if you see that. That's going to be hard here with the microphone now. Um, you see that the rings, the head ring is a bit bent. I already hammered on it because I thought there were hoop nails on it. And hoop nails are those little things here on the side. And I thought they were still in there. So I removed this one. So maybe I did some damage on it. It's not that bad. The worst part is when the stave, where the stave hits the head, there's a little indentation in the stave. And that's the weakest part of the stave, so it can crack. You can't really see that if you're going to purchase it. If you don't remove the head ring, you will never be aware about it. It's not always bad, but in a lot of cases, it's bad. Last one. This is going to be funny. One of the weakest spots on a barrel will be the bunghole. Somewhere, we, as a winemaker, I don't know, sometimes winemakers have uh, another hole on the head. Brewers sometimes drill a little nail in it to take a sample. So in this case, it's the only hole that we have in this barrel. And this stave is prone to cracking. And actually, this one is cracked here. So it has a little um, crack here. The, um, it's a little bit. Difficult with the light situation here, but the crack doesn't seem to go too far. It really sounds good. I don't think a lot of barrels are just going to have this. It, this barrel has been bent before under, while it was heated, and then they drilled that hole in. And you, you see, I only have like two centimeters or less than an inch on both sides. And so it's, there's potential to crack. It's not bad, it, as long as it's hold liquid, it will be fine. But 
we we're not going to test that here if it holds liquid, but Nate will test that for us. You should smell it. It smells good. <laughs> but this is so important. If it smells well, that's a very good indication. And sometimes winemakers will sulfur it because that's kind of what they like to do. For So you have to take, it's a little bit of a risk. I had smelled it before, but you wave your hand to smell if there's sulfur because that could be a problematic. It's a good sign when it's sulfured, but this one really smells to the wine still that was in it. So this is really a good indication as such. Okay. Um, in general, I like to roll a barrel around. I typically do it um, while I'm on the head. And just look around. If you see indentations, holes, uh, here the ring has been moved. So that's a good one to notice. The rings are still aligned. So it doesn't look like somebody without knowledge took off the rings and put them back. Then typically they switch it a bit. Not bad again, but those are things that give you indications if you look at the barrel that something could be wrong. Uh, there's no, this wood is really, if you look to, how do you call those? The, if you look to the grain, and if it's a French oak barrel, the grain definitely needs to be aligned. And this is kind of a crucial one for leaks, as I will talk later about, that um, they eventually, uh, French wood has to be cleaved, otherwise it becomes uh, prone for leaking. It's the sap carrying uh, channels from the wood that could be, if they get sawn, uh, sawn through. Am I doing good on my English? <laughs> there is a potential for leaking. And it's because the, if um, the grain goes from the inside to the outside, you get a leak here. So I will show you how to deal with that. Um, where is that the most problematic on the head? Because there we make the crows. And the, so we make an, uh, um, um, an indentation. And so at that point, it could be leaking through there. Whereas the else, uh, the bunghole can also be a leak place. Typically, it's on the top of the barrel, so it's not going to be a big problem. Okay. This particular barrel wasn't actually charred. Uh, as a wine barrel, it would have been toasted. So there are different, degree, different degrees of toast that will impart different flavors and bring out, you know, there are several flavors that are involved and, and dozens of compounds, but there are, there are various flavors that you can generalize about based on degree of toast. The only, I mean, typically, the most common barrels that are actually charred on the inside are bourbon barrels. That's part of their process. So if you saw some darkening, it was from the toasting and possibly also from, uh, from the, the wine crystals that Peter's talked about. So what are you going to do first? Um, first talking about uh, true wood leaks. Okay. So there's two types of leaks that make a substantial different way that you're going to repair the barrel. True wood leaks is the worst. Um, it shouldn't happen too much on um, American oak because it's going to Sorry, why do I use the words? But um, American oak, because the grain can be sawn there, because there's enough interruptions through the, the grain, the tylos as we call that. So it, if there is a leak through grain, it typically will be stopped. French wood can have a problem with that. I was explaining that already. So, but, um, so if we have a leak from the inside here and it goes the grain up the, just to capillarity and this way it could go up also. And so you start to have a little leak in the middle of the stave. You're like, oh, what is that? So how do you stop it? And we have this stave here. Imagine there's a leak here. The easiest way to stop it is you just want to cut that grain. The way you cut it, because typically for smaller barrels and those grains are still, still pretty straight, you will put a chisel on the way they think the grain comes out to um, the surface. 
Hey, just gonna just long it. Not too deep. Hey, you just wanna interrupt that little vein so that's not gonna leak. So that's an easy one. Um, you can try to do it with garlic, chalk, or um, there's one more. I forget it. Oh, um, bentonite or something. Yeah, um, something that winemakers typically have. But garlic is maybe easier. Garlic has the tendency you just cut a little cloth and you rub it in. So, and then chalk, what I was using here is an easy one. They are for older barrels, and sometimes you typically can have true grain leak, true wood leaks here on the top. And at that point, it's a little bit harder to stop. But what are you gonna do? You're gonna try to increase the size of the hole a little bit with the awl and you're gonna drive in a, a wedge. It can be, in these barrels, it can be a softwood wedge. Um, on um, larger barrels, you typically wanna go with hardwood. And this is a hardwood wedge that we're gonna use in a different way on larger barrels. In between, stave leaks are a little bit tougher. And the easiest there, you try to hammer the rings a little bit down and increase the pressure. Duh, you don't need to be here for, to figure that out. If it's, Again, if, we ha if this, uh, this one looks a little bit open here, well, no, it's not, I cannot put my nail in between. And but what you can do is you try to shuffle some wood back basically to, in, to the staves like this. And so you chisel a centimeter or something or a half an inch away from the staves and you try to collapse it a little bit and maybe that will stop, maybe. So those are the things you can do on, uh, in between staves, rings, try that first. If it starts to leak here on the top, in between staves, well, that's a little bit harder now. And what can we do there? We don't really have much room. The one method we can apply is with a chisel on each side. Is this boring stuff or not? Nobody's asleep yet? Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna start hammering. We'll, we'll take questions afterward, generally. Um, we'll have some time for that. So Peter's going to break apart this barrel and kind of open it up for everyone. Dick, if you wouldn't mind, like, kind of give people what is the barrel, what kind of flavors is it going to impart on a beer, and what's kind of the lifespan of a barrel? Well, the lifespan is hard to say. Well, go ahead. This is going to be loud, people. Sorry about that. So clearly Peter has used the hoop driver and the hammer to loosen and remove that that chime barrel. The top of the barrel is called the chime. Oh yes. And you have to be very careful about the way you hold it so that you don't smash your fingers, nor do you drop it on your foot. So this is what I was talking about demystifying the whole process because I think people consider a barrel sort of an, an inviolable thing. But you're, but you're really trying to just get the barrel so that it will hold liquid. It's an inexact science, and all this pinching and closing off and all that stuff is just kind of the best you can do as you're going. You'll notice that Peter's moving around the barrel. Uh, you know, it's the way you tighten the lug nuts on a car. You don't do the first one as tight as you can do it. You do them, you know, just sort of finger tight and then you tighten them as you go. And that's what he's doing with the loosening. So Peter's being careful. He's taken the top two hoops off. And at some point that crows, that groove that he mentioned earlier at the top, will loosen up enough so that the head will literally fall into the barrel. And he, you want to maintain as much integrity of the barrel as you can as you're going. So he's loosening it judiciously now so that, and, and you'll notice that he's tapping around there because sometimes just a certain amount of residue will, see there's, he's now, the, now he's loosening the individual staves with some emphasis. See, the, see the, the, the head is giving way. 
Yeah? <laughs> so he's probably going to have to loosen that, uh, that other hoop a bit more, but maybe not. There it goes. So the, it's also a good idea to mark where the orientation of that head so you put it in the same way. You can't see it from where you're sitting, but I can see a chalk mark on the side facing that fellow right there that Peter put on both the head and the, and the, the chime there so that he'll eventually be able to line it up in the same spot. So the name of the salon is the Cooper's Dance. Would you kind of inform people why well, we would call this? I think you'll, you'll see the Cooper's Dance. It's, it's part of the process of putting a barrel back together. Yeah. In the bending process of this barrel, sometimes the stave bulged a little bit towards the inside. If I see that, winemakers don't care about that. And they will not really, they don't even want to do this. Um, if I see that as a, I'm going to be the third, fourth, fifth user in this process. So there's going to be dirt behind there. I'm coming with a lower alcohol product in there, so I probably want to take care of that part. So if I see something that bulges inward, I'm going to use an easy tool, chisel, I will get rid of it. And I will scrape it. So the scraping I'm going to demonstrate, if you're okay with it, Nathan. <laughs> Let me have a good look because it's kind of hard to... Oh, there is actually a bulge here. Oh, there is a few. There's a bulge inward? Yeah. Is, are there any crystals in there? No. This takes some courage to actually remove some of the inner surface of the barrel. But once again, all you're trying to do is get it to the point at which it will be, have good integrity and hold liquid. Sorry, what's that? So those were the pieces that were bent inward and they become an uncontrollable piece for the brewer. The stuff that be gets behind there is something you can't really deal with. For me, that's the main reason why I want to take it apart. If you look through the manhole and you see crystals or you see those are hard to see because I would never see it. It's on an angle with the manhole that I couldn't see it. You want to get rid of those. So opening it is good to have for that reason. What? Yeah, see, he's, he's breaking a sweat here. And this is still damp. You know, I don't know how long it's been since this was holding, up, holding wine, but it's, but it's still damp. There's um, cattails here that can be used. If you look at the cattail, it's a kind of a hard, woody outside, but on the inside, not, a, not the center of it, it's actually very mushy, and it's a little bit sticky. And that's very good material to stop a leak. And this is a tool that we're not always gonna use. We hope to stop the leak by just hammering it close, 
but if we have to flag it up, we call this flagging material, then we're going to see that, um, yeah, it's a little bit interesting how to do it. That's where this tool come in, comes in. So I'm going to pull a stave away. Maybe I should do it all in front. If this, it's kind of hard. Well, I can, I can talk too. Yeah. He's prying the staves apart, and this cattail material is actually the sticky stuff that's within a cattail. So when you're ready to use it, you actually peel away the layers and insert it. But the first thing you have to do is make the, make the gap wide enough so that you can slip it in there. I mean, so much of this flies in the face of what we're used to in using, you know, sterile tanks and stainless steel and all that stuff because we're just, we're just trying to get this thing to hold liquid and not, you know, give, in, give up or admit too much air or anything like that. We want it to be tight, but it's not completely exact. And then comes the fun part. Um, if I teach lessons, uh, you seem to do that also, but uh, if we teach lessons, it's kind of a hard one. Uh, first of all, it's about touching the barrel. Do you dare to go so far as I already went? But now you need to put the head back. And the head, putting the head back is a little bit of a trick. I hope I, make, I show it, this echo, <laughs> um, that it looks very easy, but it's actually not that easy. You just have to do... Uh, so you're going to have to do that multiple times the first time it happens. And it's really, don't worry about it if you're a first timer on it. It will take you a bit of time just to repeat the process, try to be better the next time around, and you'll get it. Um, there's a few things here. I'm going to try starting back the process on building this barrel back to, or putting this back, barrel back together. The starting position is kind of crucial, especially if you're alone. You guys could help me, but I wonder, so far, nobody wanted to smell the barrel, so we'll see, yeah? I'm gonna put the head hammer in, in there because I'm gonna need it. And so I just put it in, but a piece that is long enough to reach the head um, in the barrel. This is one of those processes that you really need three or four hands to do. Extracurricular activity is Peter teaches coopering at New Belgium. So if you work at New Belgium in accounting and you're interested in knowing how to build a barrel, you can go take a class with him on building a barrel. And we did a lot of, we had some really funky, funky fooders that needed, I mean, so these aren't barrels, they're like man handle, they're, they're big, like big, big. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, of reworking the of tools things. for barrel repair look cute compared to the uh, food repair tools. Uh, we have drivers that are two meters long, or uh, what is that, uh, seven, eight feet long, that we actually hammer the rings down, or laying on the barrel that we push them down. And, but it's all just a little bit of bigger scale. Starting position here, eh? ever crucial tool is already my back pocket, very important. Uh, I have a driver, hammer, the two hoops, and this one, uh, the head hammer sticking in. Hey, Peter, real quick. Um, what are people drinking right now? <laughs> Sorry, the mystery beer. Thanks for reminding me, Bradley. Um, so what we have here, in New Belgium, we don't make much... Uh, uh, bourbon barrel aged beers because we've been always more busy with food or souring, but we do work with uh, some whiskey barrels that we get from Denver from a, um, a distillery in Denver. In this case, what you're having is a bourbon barrel aged La Folie, and so it takes it tastes way more boozier. It probably is because of the booze from uh, the bourbon that's still in there. Okay. Okay. Well, um, 
the, talk, the title of this talk is The Cooper's Dance, and that's really what you go through when you need to put a barrel together. Typically, that's more when you're putting it together from scratch, needing, when you need to sort of gather all the, all the staves together and put the hoops in. You'll notice that Peter's now lining up the head with that chalk mark that I mentioned earlier, inserting the one side into the crows from below. Yeah, and this is a this is a delicate part because you're holding it in your hand, but then you need to get your hand your fingers out from between there, and that's what the head puller is for. So he's got that little hooky thing holding that up and he's gonna pull it up. Now, the first time you do this, you almost certainly won't succeed in in setting it in place, but uh, and there's no shame in dropping it back in again, but you'll see you'll notice that Peter's using that head hammer to both hold the head in place and tap it into position so that the head goes back up into, into the crows there all the way around. And at some point it's gonna make, see, he just, he just withdrew the head puller to serve with, it, with a deft move. And now he's still holding it there. Look, looks like he might need a tap or two on, on the side of, that he's standing on but he's close enough so that he can put the other hoops on now and at least put them loosely in place. And now the, the head has stopped wobbling because it's, it's into the crows sufficiently. And now it's just a matter of tightening the hoops up to where they were and in alignment so that they have integrity. It's still loose enough, you can see that, it's still loose enough so that it flutters a bit when you tap it from below. But as he tightens it, it'll, it'll come more, more uh, solidly together. Dick, is the temperature outside, the ambient temperature gonna affect the barrel? Is it gonna swell and shrink and contract? Is it gonna affect what? The, the barrel itself, is it gonna contract and swell? And well, it certainly is when there's liquid in it, and that's, that's a big subject, really. Both the temperature and the humidity will affect how liquid flows both ways, in and out of the barrel through the ambient um, you know, surroundings. Um, but as far as what Peter's doing, yeah, sure. I mean, New Belgium had uh, a load of fooders that they didn't, couldn't install at, at, at the time that they were delivered and they had to put them in a warehouse. And by the time they actually were able to commission them, they had lost about a thousand pounds in water weight. So yes, humidity definitely affects, humidity and dryness definitely affects how a barrel has worked. My knee hurts. <laughs> He's worn out. He is worn out. <laughs> so this is the Cooper's dance, where you have to go around and around and around the barrel. Once again, being careful to hold your fingers away from the inside so that you don't whack them with the hammer, and so that when you drop it, it doesn't hit your foot. When hammering on the, on the head hoop, you want to make sure that it's, that it's flush with the chime. Thank you. Thank you. 
Dick, can you break a barrel, putting it back together like this? I think you'd be hard-pressed to break it like this. You know, as Peter pointed out, the weakest stave in the barrel is the one that has the bunghole in it, and that's most likely going to be broken if you, if you drop If you drop, if you drop it. <laughs> but see, Peter made that look easy, but, it's, but you'll note that it's not really a series of terribly complicated moves. You know, it's removing, it's loosening, it's pulling the head, it's dropping it in. It's, the main thing is, is it's not to be afraid of it. I think most of us, you know, and I include myself in the breweries I've worked at where we've had barrels, it's like, oh, it's a barrel, I don't want to take it apart, you know, I'd rather throw it away than take it apart, but, but it's worth the effort because these barrels can impart, of course, wonderful character both from the wood and from whatever else has lived in them or whatever was in them before you got them. And uh, it's worth the effort to try to reclaim them and, to t and it's a good idea to take a look inside to see, I mean, you know, we couldn't tell from the outside that, that, that there was that inward bulge that Peter chiseled away. But, uh, you know, in the interest of uh, storing a fairly low, you know, typically fairly low alcohol, alcoholic beverage in there, um, it's, it's in your interest to smooth it out and take care of that. So, not so complicated, but you're the one who's sweating, not me. <laughs> so, you got an idea on how to fix leaks and didn't show how you deal with the head itself, and, but it's the same, you're gonna try to flag it up if it doesn't work. So you can do it again by trying to tightening the rings, but you can pull the head apart, put flagging material in between it, put it back together. I didn't look how this one is hold together. Currently, Coopers are using quite some different techniques on that. It used to be a pinhole connection uh, with uh, dowels or sometimes nails. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier, sometimes they start to use glue now. Uh, other connections are grooved. Um, so you kind of have to see how the, the head is holding together and how you're gonna repair it. It's a bit of an experimental process if you go through it, but it's um, really fun to learn and to do it. Yeah, and it's, it's really a confidence builder. And wine barrel, we all lost, we all forgot our cooperage skills. Our grandfather's new, and who are we? Let's do it again, we can. Now that Peter's a little worn down, Dick, do you have something else to say? No, no, no I was just going to ask for questions. Yeah, I was going to say, let's take a few questions, if that's all right with you guys. I'll start over here. If you, if you end up with a barrel that was dry, um, and it, do you have to... How, how do you prepare it then to put beer in it if it's a dried barrel, it's an older barrel? Well, you wet it. I mean, you, it, it typically will take, I mean, it will take days or longer. For the Are you wood. using water? Yeah, water, I mean. Filling it with water. Filling it with water, yeah. Filling it with water. Filling it with non-chlorinated, non-mineral water, you know, good water, so that it will swell up. And it will typically take a great deal of water and a great deal of leakage, but over time, um, it will generally seal up. Increasing the temperature a bit of the water will really help also. And um, staves don't really shrink much in this direction. And they shrink a lot in, in, in both direction of the tree like this, up to 8%. So you can have something that really looks and doesn't feel very solid, but if you can get it to swell back, it's gonna close. Yeah, I was talking about that earlier. Yeah, I mean, these are big fooders. Those were, how big were those fooders? Those were all hovering around um, 110, 10 110 hectoliter fooders. Yeah, so 3,000 They had pounds. a scale on the, on, the, on, the, on the cranes that unloaded them initially and then that moved them into position when they were ready to put them into place. In Colorado, where it's dry, by the time, over, what, several months, right? They had lost 1,000 pounds in water just evaporated from the water. And that per fooder, and that's that's all got to be put back in in order for them to seal. And and I recall some of those fooders, it was quite a job to get them to seal. I was afraid while they were hanging on the crane that they were falling apart. Would fall apart, so we numbered all the staves so that if they fell apart, that we could have reconstructed them. 
this is not a good situation, but Colorado is a very hard uh, here. I'm sweating so much because I'm not used to this humidity. This is good for barrels. And but in Colorado, we have often very low humidity. Those were stored for eight months in uh, dry conditions in Colorado, dry, warm conditions, and uh, it was bad. But they're all in use right now. Could you step back and talk a little bit about uh, why do wine guys not reuse their barrels and what is is that like a regular market process of selling the reselling the barrels to beer makers for wine barrels? Yeah. Um, wine barrels typically are reused. Red wine barrels aren't used all that many times because they sit in the wood for quite a while. You know, they'll often sit in red wine barrels for a, a year or two, you know a couple of years. White wine barrels spend less time in the wood. So they are used more, and that's one reason that white wine barrels are harder to come by. Um, you know, one reason that um, Peter mentioned the single use of, of bourbon barrels, and that's actually mandated by law, well, that they can only use for, to make bourbon, uh, the, the barrels can only be used once. And that means a couple of things. It means that the wood is thinner because they don't intend for it to last forever. But, uh, and then they, of course they char it as well. But it means that there's a ready supply of already used bourbon barrels for the, I mean, mostly those go to Scotland and Ireland for whiskey production um, because they, you know, they will use them again and again as long as they possibly can. Uh, and we talked, I guess somebody asked a little bit about the lifespan of a barrel. Maybe Bradley asked about that. But it, it, it depends on what it's held before and what happens to it along the way. But... Um, so there's a ready supply of bourbon barrels to go to the whiskey industry and also the first wood-aged beers that most of us had in the early days of wood-aging of beer were, were bourbon barrels, stouts, and porters, you know, really strongly boozy-flavored things that were ag very aggressive in their flavors. And, of course, over time, as we've started to use other types of barrels, and we've used those bourbon barrels again and again and again, our sensibilities have sort of become a little more subtle. But... Uh, there are any number of things. There are other spirits as well. I mean, the sky's the limit, really. So, related to that, um, in wine, we are seeing now concrete barrels that also have some breathability characteristics similar to wood barrels. Do you think that's going to come into beer as you well? You want to talk about that? Yeah, <laughs> I only saw and tasted one that uh, in, the, in wine they start to switch to concrete, um, and they like those concrete eggs because it's the idea of fermentation. I tasted the beer that was aged in a, a concrete barrel, and it tasted like a concrete barrel. It was, <laughs> it, it was um, quite oxidized, and the purpose is and the purpose of wood for sour beer is oxygen diffusion. That's why I want to scrape it on the inside. Concrete is also can deliver oxygen diffusion, plus it also delivers. It's raw concrete. Eh? It delivers a lot of minerality that maybe is good for wine, but it wasn't very good for beer. I, that's my opinion, but I'm pretty adamant there. Yeah, the, the, oxygenation, the oxygenation of the contents of a barrel is a very important part of the process, particularly for wine. And for beer as well, especially with protracted aging of things that are, um, you know, sour beers that spend two, three year, two, three or however many years in there. Um, you know, to many ways of looking at it, the, the micro-oxygenation of the beer is the main reason to use a barrel for certain styles of beer. I just wanted to go back a second to bourbon barrels, um, just because this was the only part of the trip I was on. So, you know, we use them for bourbon in, in the United States, and then they break the barrels down and they ship them all the way to Scotland where they have a whole industry of people who put the who do the brewers the the coopers dance and put all those barrels back together and there I mean we saw thousands of barrels being put back together in northern Scotland and then they turned them into scotch whiskey barrels so yeah, that, it that, was I, I just thought that was fascinating that coopers we went to in Scotland didn't actually make barrels all yeah. they did was recondition barrels Hundreds of thousands every year. Because they want to break them down because they're too much volume of air if they ship them over the ocean as a barrel, so they flatten them into wood staves. It was fascinating because they take what you did here, and it 
really is like a like a dance. I mean, we watched these guys do this art form thing that was kind of incredible. The way they would roll them and and de-hoop them, and it was pretty amazing. But, but from a historical stance, this is really what barrels were about. They were the container, and they got they got the use. They got discommissioned on a ship, so they put them in staves so that they have place to sleep. And then they got fish, so then they had to make the barrel again to put the fish in it. And, and barrels were used and over, and so uh, the only stuff that really remains is the Kentucky barrels or the, the bourbon barrels that now get shipped to Scotland is a huge traffic. A little bit is going in between Brewers sometimes and then to Scotland or from Scotland back to Brewers. And so we kind of get those old historic things of shipping barrels for different uses again happening. Like Japan now, I guess, the risk of Japan. Sure. But so I mean, this is, uh, this is a relatively recent thing. Through most of its history, the barrel was a shipping container. You know, it was, it, as Peter said, it was full of fish or oil or flour or cheese or something and, and any number of things, ship stores, turpentine, tar, water, and it's only relatively recently, and I'm talking about the last couple of hundred years, that it's been used to age beverages at all. You know, the Scotch whiskey industry developed because of that use. The bourbon industry has developed because of that use. And now, in the really the blink of an eye recent, of, of recency, brewers are starting to use them again. And so we've, you know, we've repurposed them. It's a completely different function that they've existed, that they've been used for through most of their history. So there's a very different uh, use of barrels here in terms of like bourbon aging beer versus fermenting beer with the wild yeast and bacteria that live in the wood staves. And so I'm curious as to whether, so, so as a home brewer, it's very easy to get access to wood to impart vanilla and other, you know, wood flavors into a, uh, a beer to represent like bourbon barrel aging. But in terms of, of wood fermenting, most of your beers are blended, right? Like mo most, of, most of the beers that you're doing for, for wood fermenting are, yeah. are blended. Yeah, for our sours, yes, I would definitely yeah. recommend blending. So from, from a standpoint of a home brewer who's never going to have access to more than one or half of or a third of a barrel at a time, uh, is there any any uh, uh, way to think about trying to impart those similar flavors? We work with uh, a local home brewers in Fort Collins, and we have uh, one barrel that they come taste from time to time. This is something the TTB should know, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, they taste it. If they t deem it ready, they come over, they okay. bottle it, and then they brew with 10 home brewers again to fill it back up. And we just store it, you know. So they're able to get flavor out of one barrel as opposed to having to blend back in to get the flavors they want. That's the hard part. Eh? Yeah. And there's other methods for souring. As, if you, as a home brewer, if you go to a smaller vessel, the amount of oxygen diffusion is way larger. Mm -hmm. And I like uh, Rash Apta's website where he actually re recommends to put a, a table steak yeah. into... Yes. Eh? But then you reduce that, the amount I, of... I think that's gone out of favor since he decided that was going to work. <laughs> yeah, I don't see I why it wouldn't or why it couldn't. Uh, but there are other methods that you can use on a homebrew level. I mean, yeah. uh, putting beer in a growler and using some sort of a porous wood plug like the, like the, the spile that's used to put, into a, to put into a cask beer to let oxygen go in there very slowly. You know, because you, of course you want to meet out the oxygen that comes in contact with the beer. Otherwise, you'll have too much acetic acid in, in formation and all that, but there are ways to synthesize it. And of course, I'm sure you're familiar with wood chips and you know that kind of treatment that you can use to get some of the flavors of wood. But there, I, there are any number of ways that you can synthesize some of these processes. But Peter mentioned this, this, this group of home brewers. Part of the key to the success of that project with a single barrel is filling it all at once. So you have, a fa have to have a fairly concerted effort of all these people producing five or 10 or, f or maybe 15 gallon batches to fill that barrel because if you only fill it in dribs and drabs, you're running the risk of oxida oxidizing it along the way. Um, Peter, uh, your t first beer we tried, Lafalee, a wonderful, wonderful tart, sour beer. Uh, are you strictly going to use that same food or that same barrel the entire time or would you kind of rotate out barrels for that same beer? La Folie is a blended fooder beer, eh? and so fooders or barrels or like kids, they're gonna go wherever they go. Eh? Eh? 
gonna have to do a hallelujah. Come on, can we do it louder than them? Hallelujah! Good. Um, I think that was the Trump rally. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, the blending, I think, is very. <laughs> Do you want to do another one? You guys were really good. Come on, let's do it again. Hallelujah! <laughs> okay, what was the question? <laughs> but, so, yeah, it's um, barrels or like it's, they all get their own. Hey, you kind of can see if you have stuff hiding there, but even if you don't have, this wood over time gets really leached out. The tenons are the protection of the wood for microbiology. The tenons are gone. Microbiology is going to replace it. And so they built their own microbiology. So you really have to kind of use and blend what you like. And that's why for us, time is not a measurement. Rodema, we used to claim that the beer is minimum 18 months old, and typically that was the case. But sometimes we had a really good Grand Cru after a year. Well, you know, we made Grand Cru. Because it's great. That's what we make. We make good beer, you know? We devoted the last chapter of the book to blending, and it was both the blending of beer and the blending of ideas. Because, as I mentioned earlier, there's been so little scholarship about beer and wood that those of us who have been doing it over the years have basically taught each other. You know, we've taught ourselves, and fortunately we've had a resource as expert and experienced as Peter, you know, with his years at New Belgium and his years at Rodenbach before that. But that last chapter, um, I, you know, I, we wrote a lot of people and asked for their advice. You know, Nathan was one of the contributors to, to some of the things that we reproduced in the book. And Lauren Salazar from New Belgium, who was in charge of their wood program for many years, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't mean she's done with that. Uh, but she's had this notebook that, com that presents notes, tasting notes for each barrel that she does very regularly. Um, and that's, that's the, the base of knowledge that she uses in order to figure out what's going to go, what might go well together. And then she wrote uh, probably about a 2,000 word stretch about her, her blending process. You know, how she tastes things, ranks them, has favorites, has things that maybe are coming along and all that stuff. And she sent that, and it was a long stretch. And I practically cried when I finished reading it. And we ran every word of it because you can't find better expertise and a better statement of how to do this than what, what Peter and Lauren and some of the other people there have done. That's what I'm most, mostly acquainted with. But there are other wonderful wood programs around the country. Founders has a terrific cellar with 5,000 bourbon barrels that they rotate through every year uh, in the gypsum mine there in Grand Rapids. So there's all sorts of stuff going on. And from little teeny breweries that are just doing things with one or two barrels to what New Belgium's doing on the scale that they're doing, this is something that is not going away. I mean, this is, this is a really interesting time in the history of beer and the development of these styles of beer. Put you on the spot. You provided the barrel, and so like, um, are you are you having barrels all the time, or is it something hard to come by, or is it, are you seeing more and more in the brewing industry? Um, so Rocky Mountain Barrel Company, we source probably about twenty six different styles of barrels throughout the year. Um, we don't keep everything in stock all the time because that's not something that we want to have hanging around, dry, waiting for you guys to feel like you want it. Um, so everything that we get is kind of an on-demand type situation. Um, yeah, so we go through bourbon, wine, cognac, rum, tequila, pretty much anything that we can find. Um, as Peter's described, that there's a number of different situations you might run into when working with barrels. So we try to be as transparent as possible as we can about what type of quality of barrels that we have coming in, what their history is, what they've been through. Um, just all the information that we have before sourcing them so that we can pass them on to you because the reality is that what really makes the difference is what you're going to do with them uh, once you receive them. That's what's going to make or break your beer. Can we get a big round of applause for our presenters this evening? Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Dick, so very much for being here and doing the Cooper's Dance for us because this is a very, like we said, this is a very unique thing that most people don't get to see. That was a fairly restrained Cooper's Dance, you know. Sometimes you really, you really kick it out, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm not critical. I'm not being critical. 
All right. Well, thank you all so very much for being here. We appreciate it. I hope you had a wonderful savor and have a wonderful evening. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2016, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2016, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.